Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 87, updates in early stage breast cancer treatment for premenopausal women. It has been a while since I've done a solo episode, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the newest and updates in treatment to triple negative breast cancer, to HER2 positive breast cancer, and of course, in hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And that really is where a lot of the current debate lies about how we approach our treatment and how we tailor our treatment. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Before we get into all of that, I think it's important to really lay the foundation about what we are dealing with when we talk about premenopausal breast cancer and specifically really young adults with breast cancer. About 4% of all breast cancers that are diagnosed in the United States are going to occur in women under the age of 40, and 9% of all breast cancers in the U.S. occur in women under the age of 45. So this is not an insignificant number. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, it's so rare, but it's almost 10% of people of all breast cancers occurring under the age of 45, so it's really not that rare. Globally, the number is a little bit different. Globally, premenopausal women, so this is not just under the age of 45, this is all premenopausal, account for about 30% of all breast cancer diagnoses in 2018. So it's about a third being diagnosed really 50 and under, 51, 52 and under. Every year, and this is a very sobering statistic, every year, more than 1,000 women under the age of 40 die from breast cancer. So this is, this is a big problem. We have to improve survival for all of our patients is that nearly 80% of young women diagnosed with breast cancer find their breast abnormality themselves. Either they are too young to go for a mammogram. Sometimes they are not aware that they are high risk and thus they're not going for earlier mammograms or MRIs. And a lot of times they're unaware that they carry a genetic mutation, putting them at high risk because no one in their family has had cancer or they haven't had testing or screening because it wasn't recommended, things like that. The other part of this is that some of the organizations in the United States recommend starting mammograms at 45 or even 50, which we all feel is too late. Recommendations that we follow are those that recommend starting at the age of 40 for average risk. So if you're younger, if you're, let's say you have a BRCA mutation, you might start younger, but for average risk, you're going to start at the age of 40 and continuing once a year, not every two years, but once a year until the life expectancy is estimated to be 10 years or less. The reason for that is to put a cutoff and say, okay, well, after 75, you shouldn't be getting a mammogram doesn't make sense because someone might live 
till 90. And, and so it is important to get mammograms. On the other hand, if you have someone who's 75, but has a lot of other very significant medical issues, then maybe getting a mammogram doesn't really make sense at that point. To go back to younger women, compared to the older population, they do generally face more aggressive cancers and unfortunately lower survival rates. So we need to be doing what we can to improve, improve these outcomes in this population. Now, before we dive into updates in the three subtypes of breast cancer, you know, we talk a lot about the challenges that young adults face with breast cancer, but I think it's important to put them all together because only then can you really get a, a, a true understanding of the scope of these issues. So starting with fertility issues, sexual dysfunction and intimacy concerns, early menopause and all of the side effects that come with that, parenting during cancer treatment, racial disparities, financial concerns, mental health concerns, a lot of patients suffer from anxiety and depression, body image, you know, especially going through menopause, having surgery that impacts so much cognitive impairment. We know that chemo brain or cognitive dysfunction, um, both through chemotherapy and, and endocrine therapy is real and can be very, very debilitating. Uh, relationship concerns and, and medication non-adherence, which is a big issue because a lot of people and non-adherence is what's kind of quoted in the literature. And I don't think that's so much the right way to phrase it, to be honest. I think a lot of patients stop taking medications because of the detrimental effect it has on their quality of life. And they do this, they make an educated decision to stop. So I, I don't think saying they're non-adherent is the right way to put it. Um, but I'll just, that's kind of what you'll see when you when it's in the literature. Taking all that, let's now go into the subtypes and kind of talk about what is new in each of them. The triple negative breast cancer. Our previous standard of care has always been some sort of combination of chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. In 2021, we saw two new drugs for triple negative breast cancer. The first one is pembrolizumab or Keytruda, that is immunotherapy, works differently than chemotherapy, but it's still an IV infusion. And this was a study that was done a couple of years ago, published this year and approved by the FDA in 2021. And this is for patients with clinical stage two or three triple negative breast cancer. When we say clinical, we mean that someone is diagnosed, they have a mammogram, they have an MRI, they may have additional scans, and their doctor is going to assign them a stage based on how big the cancer is, how many lymph nodes are involved, and whether it has spread anywhere else. For patients with stage two or stage three cancer, so these are typically our larger and or lymph node positive cancers, we're going to give our standard chemotherapy that we gave and we're adding in Keytruda, which is immunotherapy, both before, before surgery and then after surgery. The thing with this study is that it did that with standard chemotherapy, ACT, that we always give, but it also added in carboplatin. So this approval and this publication didn't just result in the addition of Keytruda, in many, many cases, it also adds in a second, another chemotherapy drug, carboplatin, because we don't know if we can 
just give the chemo that we gave with Keytruda without also adding in carboplatin, you lose the benefit there. And we don't have that information. So personally, what I do is I will give the carboplatin unless someone cannot tolerate it. They're having a lot of side effects. Maybe their blood counts are very low, things like that. That study showed that the addition of Keytruda caused a 37% reduction in the risk of recurrence or death. So that is a pretty significant number. There's a lot more research now ongoing about whether you need to continue Keytruda if you've achieved a pathologic complete response. But for right now, you get it before you have surgery and you get it after surgery for another 27 weeks. That's nine treatments once every three weeks. The other drug that happened in 2021 was the publication of the Olympia study. Now, the Olympia study looked at the drug Olaparib or Limparzum for patients who have BRCA1 or 2 mutations. Olaparib is a PARP inhibitor, and these drugs have been shown to work in patients with BRCA mutations. And what they did here was in high-risk patients that were either triple negative or which will get to estrogen receptor positive, and they define high risk very specifically. You have to either not have had a pathologic complete response for triple negative, for ear positive, it has to be a certain size, certain amount of lymph nodes, so very individual. Um, but to give you an idea, so for the high risk patients, you get a laparib, which is a pill, for one year following standard therapy. And this resulted in a 42% reduction in the risk of cancer recurrence or death, also a significant number. So we have two drugs that are very beneficial, but we're extending our treatment. We are adding a lot more side effects. And so it's a, you know, we're going to do those treatments, we're going to offer them if they're indicated and recommend them. But I think we have to take a step back and say, well, what are we causing harm? to the patient? Are we adding more side effects? Are we, you know, an extra year of therapies a lot? Think about all of the visits, the costs, the side effects. It makes it really changes the treatment and extends it significantly. So I think that that's just an important point that we always need to keep in mind when we add more treatments. Now it's triple negative. Moving on to HER2 positive breast cancer. So a little bit different. Um, we're actually, unlike triple negative cancer, where you just heard me talk about adding, adding ion, for HER2 positive, we're actually maybe taking some away or de-escalating treatment. So again, our current standard of care is going to be a combination of chemotherapy, anti-HER2 therapy, surgery, and radiation. And again, what you get depends on your individual cancer characteristics, the size, the lymph nodes, the response to treatment, all of that. But what is changing in the way that we approach it is that we are for very small HER2 positive cancers, we realize that giving the same chemotherapy that we give to a much bigger lymph node positive breast cancer will, doesn't make sense. And so they did all these studies and they looked at um, a milder chemotherapy and found that it was just, it was effective. And so we're de-escalating what we do, which is wonderful because we are sparing side effects. We're sparing toxicity and less is more in some of these cases. 
Additionally, we're getting away from using anthracycline-based chemotherapy for HER2-positive breast cancer. We have such wonderful HER2-targeted drugs right now that the anthracycline, so this is your doxorubicin, the red devil, or epirubicin, it's not adding much, but it's significantly increasing your risk of heart disease right away or in the future. It can impact the ability to finish your full course of HER2 therapy. And again, it comes not only with that risk of heart problems, use of anthracyclines also increases your risk for leukemia. So we are again, taking away here. Now we all know about Herceptin for HER2 positive. We also know about Progetta and we have a lot of newer HER2 drugs for metastatic HER2 positive cancer, which I'm not getting into today. But what we do have for early stage is Ketsila. Ketsila is a type of medication called an antibody, antibody drug conjugate. And how we use it right now is for patients who have received Herceptin and Progetta with chemotherapy before surgery. At the time of surgery, they do not achieve a pathologic complete response, meaning there's still cancer left on the surgical specimen when it is removed. We are switching to Catsila instead of continuing the Herceptin or the Herceptin and Progetta. And doing that leads to a 50% re reduction in the risk of recurrence or death. Very significant numbers. Now, Catsila does have more side effects, notably some more joint pain, some more neuropathy, and that can be problematic. Uh, and it's a little bit of a longer course than you would if you continued your Herceptin and Progetta. So again, we're offering it, but I think it's important to lay the side effects out there from the beginning so that people are prepared for what to expect. And there are, again, are a lot of new anti-HER2 drugs that are either in development or are being studied that work in the metastatic setting. And now they're being moved to earlier setting to see if we can improve outcomes even further. So we've covered triple negative, we've covered HER2 positive, and now we're gonna talk about the big thing, hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And it's not to say that this is more important, but there's a little bit more controversy, or not controversy, but debate about how to best treat this patient population. So again, we're talking here about premenopausal, early stage breast cancer. So again, when we think about our standard of care, this was for some people, chemotherapy, for all people, endocrine therapy, surgery, and radiation. Let me back up a little bit. A couple of, probably a decade ago or so, our standard of care for endocrine therapy was tamoxifen. Everyone would get tamoxifen. And the way that tamoxifen works it essentially binds to the estrogen receptor so that estrogen can't bind to the estrogen receptor and thus any cancer, residual cancer cells don't grow because they need estrogen to grow. So we're blocking that interaction. And for a long time, that's what everyone got. Postmenopausal women were getting aromatase inhibitors. And the way that aromatase inhibitors work is that they suppress estrogen levels in postmenopausal women. And the way that they do that is they inhibit or inactivate the enzyme aromatase. 
aromatase is what makes estrogen. It's responsible for the synthesis of estrogen. So if you block aromatase with an aromatase inhibitor, you can't make estrogen. Now it works everywhere, but not in the ovaries. So that's why you, could, you can't give an aromatase inhibitor to a premenopausal woman because their ovaries are still pumping out estrogen. So you can block estrogen from other parts of their body, bones, brain, adrenal glands, fat cells, and that's all well and good, but your ovaries are still churning out estrogen. So that's why you were premenopausal, you got tamoxifen, you were postmenopausal, you got aromatase inhibitors, because when you're postmenopausal, your ovaries aren't doing anything anymore. And that worked. Then came along some studies that said, well, in postmenopausal women, aromatase inhibitors are more effective than tamoxifen. And then people said, well, if it's more effective in reducing the risk of recurrence, why can't we figure out a way to give it to premenopausal women? Because then maybe it'll help them and improve their outcomes. And that led to a number of clinical trials, the most pivotal ones being the text and soft studies. And essentially what these studies aim to do was to look at if we made premenopausal women postmenopausal so that we can give them an aromatase inhibitor, would they do better than people who just continued on tamoxifen alone? In order to do that, in order to make someone menopausal, you have to suppress their ovaries. You can suppress their ovaries either by taking the ovaries out, that's called an ophorectomy. More commonly though, we use drugs called LHRH agonists, such as Lupron or Zolidex. Back in the day, you could also do ovarian radiation, but that's not something that is really done at all anymore. The text and soft trials really aim to look at this question. I'm not going to go into the specifics of the study, but they compared tamoxifen, tamoxifen with ovarian suppression, aromatase inhibitor with ovarian suppression. And what they found was that aromatase inhibitors with ovarian suppression are the best in reducing recurrence risk followed by tamoxifen with ovarian suppression, followed by tamoxifen alone. And the greatest benefit came from the youngest patients, typically those under the age of 35, as well as those who had a more advanced cancer requiring chemotherapy. The recent data um, that we have, which is looking at 12-year follow-up for patients on that study, show that the greatest benefit really comes from that ovarian suppression. So it matters a little bit less if you're doing tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, which is helpful because when we think about side effects and people will tolerate one better than the other, but it's that ovarian suppression that's important. The other thing that we learned recently is that for patients who are low risk, who do not need chemotherapy, meaning they had a really small cancer, they had a low oncotype, low mammoprint, they're overall survival, meaning how long they lived for, was greater than 95% to 12 years, meaning that 95, over, over 95% of people were alive at 12 years, whether they did tamoxifen, tamoxifen with ovarian suppression, or an aromatase inhibitor with ovarian suppression. So the low-risk patients do really, really well. The 
slightly higher risk patients really benefit from that ovarian suppression. Now I'll tell you 12 year follow-up is big in breast cancer, or any cancer data, but if you're diagnosed at 30, 12 years is really not that much. So just kind of to frame that a little bit. Bottom line, if I can make a little box around this is number one, low risk, do very well with tamoxifen alone. You don't need to make someone menopausal and give them all of those side effects. Higher risk women, we're going to offer ovarian suppression with an aromatase inhibitor. Um, but again, maybe tamoxifen better in certain cases or more tolerable rather. Now the data for today is five years ovarian suppression. And so if someone's at menopausal at that point, so let's say they were, you know, they started at 45 and now they're 50 and they're in menopause and you would just continue on the aromatase inhibitor alone. Um, but let's say they started at 30, they've been on it for five years. Usually what we'll do is actually switch to tamoxifen when they're 35 for another five years. So we still want people to get 10 years, but we don't necessarily want them to be menopausal starting at the age of 30 for 10 years, because being in menopause comes with a lot, a lot of side effects. And what I think is important here is how you suppress the ovaries. And do you take the ovaries out? And I will tell you a little bit about what I do, which is based on guidelines, but understand that some people approach it a little bit differently. Like I said, you can suppress your ovaries either with Lupron or Solidex, which is going to be either a monthly or every three month injection, or you can remove the ovaries. The big thing is that these drugs are expensive. Sometimes insurance will just say, I'm not going to pay for this anymore. And a lot of times the insurance all lately, we've seen that they won't cover people coming to the cancer center to get them. They have to get them at home, which for some people works really, really well, but for other people, that's actually not great. Or they're nervous. They don't have anyone who can give them the injection. They don't want it in their house. So it goes both ways. So financial concerns, number two is you give it monthly or every three months. What I do is if I'm giving ovarian suppression with an aromatase inhibitor, I do give it monthly. We just don't have the data that says that people are adequately suppressed with an injection of Lupron for three months at a time. You give a higher dose if you're giving it every three months, but we just don't have that data. When you give ovarian suppression with tamoxifen, it's... If you have a little bit of breakthrough ovarian function, it's not as important because remember tamoxifen can be given to premenopausal women. So if you, your ovaries are working a little bit, it's fine. And so for those people, you can do every three months. And then number three is, well, what about just taking the ovaries out? This is a preferred approach for people who have genetic predisposition syndromes, such as BRCA. And typically if people are 45 or close to 45, I will discuss that as an option with them because think about it. If you're going to come for monthly injections for five years, and then you're going to be 50 at the end of it, you're pretty much in menopause anyway. And so maybe you just want to get the ovaries out for, I mean, I hate to say, but convenience really, um, 
On the flip side, if you're 30, I'm not going to offer that as an option because if you take your ovaries out at 30, that's it. You are in premature menopause starting at that point. Whereas if you stop Lupron at 35, you may regain some ovarian function. And the question becomes, well, why, why would I want to regain some ovarian function? Haven't you just spent the last time telling me that ovarian suppression is good, that we want to lower our hormone levels? Why would I want my ovaries to make estrogen? And the reason is that really early menopause for kind of permanently can be detrimental. Um, there's some data that people who undergo ovarectomies at a young age have higher risk of depression, high cholesterol, heart disease, arthritis, asthma, osteoporosis, among other things. And you're balancing, right? You're balancing the side effects and the risks of early menopause with the risks of your breast cancer coming back. And the way that I look at it is that I don't want to over-treat women who don't need ovarian suppression, but there is a clear benefit in survival for those with higher risk disease. And I will tell you that these conversations about deciding how to proceed in terms of you know, ovarian suppression, Lupron, surgery, tamoxifen, and aromatase inhibitors, these I think are some of the hardest conversations. I think they're much harder than the conversation around chemotherapy because that's a little bit more black and white in some cases. But this, there's so many nuances um, and, and the side effects are real and can be really debilitating. So these decisions are certainly not to be taken lightly. And I also think that it is important to revisit them time to time. For what, what I mean by that is, let's say I've started someone on Lupron with exemestane, an aromatase inhibitor, and six months down the road, they say, you know, I'm really starting to have a lot of hot flashes or joint aches, and I am not sleeping, and this is really debilitating. It is okay to take a step back and say, okay, is this something that's still right for right now? Um, you know, do we, and again, you're, it, we're not making any of this lightly, but as side effects change, it's important to kind of take a step back and say, is this something that is still right at the time, at this time? Or, or do we switch to moxifen? Do we, you know, take a break? Again, it's everything is a risk benefit discussion, but it's an important conversation that needs to happen. So in conclusion, I've given you a lot of information here and I will end with this that treatment of premenopausal women with breast cancer is very complicated. And the big thing is that you really, really have to balance the benefits of treatment with side effects, as well as long-term toxicity concerns. One question that I think is really important to ask is this, okay, we know that you are living with the side effect. So clearly you can live with it. Do you want to live with it? You know, some people are not as bothered by hot flashes as others, whereas some people, you know, joint aches is the big thing for them or insomnia or vaginal dryness, whatever it is. I think understanding the importance, um, the priority of these side effects, how they're impacting someone's quality of life 
is really, really important. Again, just because someone can't live with it does not mean that they want to or should be living with it. And we have a lot of new drugs and we have improved outcomes and survival, which is wonderful, but we clearly still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go in improving side effects and we have a long way to go in really understanding who is going to recur, who needs these aggressive treatments and who is not going to recur and probably doesn't need these aggressive treatments. And that will come, but we, and and research is coming, but it's not here yet. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Um, You know, as always, this podcast is general medical information. It is not specific medical advice for you or your cancer. And for that, I would urge you to reach out to your healthcare team and discuss it with them. If you enjoyed this episode or any others of the interlude podcast, I would urge you to share it with a friend, a fellow survivor, fellow thriver, um, someone that you think would benefit from this information. And I'm always honored if you take a moment to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And I I believe you can also rate on Spotify now. Um, That is the best way to help me grow the show and certainly to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for listening and I will see you all soon.